Cool. Who feels like they know what, like, understands Nehemiah? If I said to you, what's Nehemiah about, you could tell me. I'm not going to do that, but I just want to know a bit. Okay, so we all have some idea of Nehemiah. Okay, so what I thought we'll do is we'll start in Nehemiah and we'll go backwards. Um, Because the very beginning of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, tells us this. Now, before I read this, I'm really bad at knowing people's names and how to say them. Okay, so excuse my, um, how I wreck these people's names. These are the mumwahs of Nehemiah, son of everybody. <laughs> Him. That's Nehemiah's father. Um, in late um, August, in the month of, thank you, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, I've got that one, Rain, I was at the fortress of Susa, and then this guy, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from a captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. Now, if you jump to Nehemiah and start reading Nehemiah and have no idea what's come before in the history of Israel, you really don't know what's going on here. Because it tells you right here that some men have come who are visiting from Judah and I asked them about the Jews who have returned from captivity and how things are going in Jerusalem. So we know straight away that Nehemiah isn't in Jerusalem, but we know that some people are and they're in captivity and how does it actually work and how does that actually fit? So because um, Heather is going to be looking at Nehemiah, I thought I would look at the history that led up to Nehemiah so that when we get to Nehemiah, we all know what on earth is going on. So to do that, we've got to go back, not back to Genesis, don't worry, but we are going a bit further back, many, many years back, to Israel's kings. Now, can anybody tell me who was the first king of Israel? Saul, fantastic. Okay, who's, I, I thought of bringing chocolate. I did. But I know, I did think of it. But then I thought, I want it, maybe I get a collective answer and then I have no more chocolates left. The second king of Israel, well, who's the second king of Israel? David? Who's the third king of Israel? Anybody know? Solomon? Who's the fourth king of Israel? <laughs> Does anybody know? It could be. Have anybody heard of these guys before? Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The answer is nobody, really, is the fourth king of Israel, but they are. But let me just, let's get there. Okay, now it's really annoying that these two people have only two letters that are different in their name because it's really easy to get them confused. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, very different people, okay? So Rehoboam is Solomon's king, son. I was thinking of the fact that he's the next one in line to be king of Israel. Jeroboam is one of Solomon's officials, but then he leads a rebellion. So this is pretty much what happens, okay? Solomon's son Jeroboam, Rehoboam, I've got to get their names right. Rehoboam is not a really great guy. And Israel is looking and going, you're going to be our next king, really? I don't know. Do we really want him to be the king? I don't know if that's a good idea. 
Now, Jeroboam, he looks like king material. He's pretty good. And he actually gets this message from God that says, you're going to actually be king. And so Solomon hears this and tries to kill Jeroboam and, uh, Jeroboam, and Jeroboam goes running away. But then Solomon dies. So then Israel has to decide who is going to be king. And the people say to Rehoboam, are you going to lower our taxes or are you going to raise them? What are you going to do? And Rehoboam says, give me some time to think about it and I'll decide. So Rehoboam goes to Solomon's um, advisors. Thank you, I couldn't think of the word. Solomon's advisors and says, what should I do? And they say, you know what, you need to get people on your side. You should lower the taxes. And Solomon goes to his friends who are his new advisors and they say, you've got to be a strong king. You've got to raise taxes. If you don't raise taxes, they won't think that you're strong enough. So who, does, who do you think Rehoboam listens to? His friends. So he comes and says, I'm going to raise taxes. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. Now, when we think of 12 tribes, it started off as people, like as sons, but really, the 12 tribes of Israel is better to be looked at in this way, which is all bits of land got given to each of the tribes, and each tribe lives in that land, and there's thousands and thousands of people in each tribe now. So during this time, the 12 tribes of Israel had to decide who were they going to follow, are they going to follow Jeroboam or are they going to follow Solomon's son, Rehoboam? And they don't all decide the same thing. Ten tribes decide to follow Jeroboam. Two tribes decide to follow Rehoboam. So there's actually a split in God's people. And I did not know this until I was about 23 years of age and this, knowing this makes reading the Old Testament so much easier. I'm telling you this. It makes it so... If, I love the Old Testament. But I only loved the Old Testament actually after I learned that there was a split among God's people. Because when you read the prophets and when you read about the kings, you hear about two separate groups of people and I never knew why. I just thought they were the same name for the same person or the same group. But no, different group of people because this is what happened. The northern kingdom became Israel. The southern kingdom became Judah. The reason it's called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is pretty much because the south half followed, became Israel and the northern half the southern half became Judah and the northern half became Israel. I do know what I'm talking about, even though it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> so the bigger half is the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. And the smaller half, only Judah and Benjamin, and Benjamin was a really small tribe, became part of, <laughs> became part of Judah. So now what we're going to do is look at what happened to the northern kingdom. Oh, sorry. This is, so all of that, all you need to know is that God's kingdom 
was split in two. Ten went one side, which is called Israel or the northern kingdom. Two went the other side, Judah called the southern kingdom. That's really the big overall picture that's really, really helpful if you're reading anything past um, like Chronicles or even in Chronicles it happens. So um, that, knowing that is really, really helpful if you want to read the Old Testament, which is a great book to read, I think. Um, so for those who are visual, <laughs> Israel, huge. Judah, small. Okay, just for those who are visual in their understanding. So the northern kingdom, Israel. This is what happened with the northern kingdom. They had all these kings. Have a look at them. Some you may have heard of, some you may not have. But they pretty much had 19 kings. And there is one phrase that sadly comes under all these 19 kings. And you read it again and again and again um, when you read about these kings. And that's this. Did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You read that so-and-so did this and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. For some of the 19 kings, it said he did even greater evil than the one before him. But all 19 did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's really important to know when you're talking about the northern kingdom, the bigger group um, of the split. And this is what happened. Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel. They tried to capture the southern, the Judah, but Judah was able to hold them back. But the northern kingdom, all of Israel, was captured by Assyria. This is what two kings tells us. Again and again, the Lord had sent his prophets and seers to both warn Israel and Judah, turn from all your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees, the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I gave you through my servants, the prophets. But the Israelites would not listen. They were as stubborn as their ancestors who had refused to believe God in their, to believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and they despised all his warnings. They worshipped worthless idols, so they became worthless themselves. They followed the example of the nations around them, disobeying the Lord's command not to, intimidate, to imitate them. And because of that, the Syrians came and took over. And what happened to the northern kingdom is they really were assimilated into the Assyrian kingdom. Because what the people of the north did was they said, we'll worship God and your God and your God and your God. We'll take a bit of everything and mix it all together and see what happens. And so pretty much from the 19th king onwards, the northern kingdom does not exist. They do, they're lost. They're called the lost tribes of Israel the northern kingdom was completely wiped out because they did not listen to their prophets that were sent. And there were many prophets sent. They had many chances to repent. They had many chances to turn away, to turn back, but they decided not to. They decided they'd rather worship the idols that the people around them were worshipping than their God themselves, or they tried to mix the two, which never works. 
And it's so not what God says. He says, I am the one true God. Worship me only. So to try and worship God and is not worshiping God. And that's what the northern kingdom did. And so all ten tribes did not exist. So today, nobody can say, I come from one of those tribes because there's no way of knowing because they've gone. So it raises a really interesting question. Did God give up on his people? Did God abandon the covenant he made? If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that God made a covenant. He made it with Abraham. He made it with Isaac. He made it with Jacob. He made it with David. And the covenant was this. I will be your God. You will be my people. With David, your line will never end. Generations will be blessed because of you. And ten tribes completely gone. So it's easy to think God doesn't know what he's doing. But we still have the southern kingdom left. So let's have a look at the two tribes, the smaller of the group, and see what happened there. So the southern kingdom, Judah, these are all the kings that Judah had. They had 20 kings. One more king than Israel, but most of Judah's kings lasted much longer than Israel's. Like some of Israel's kings lasted for like weeks. So Judah actually lasted for a lot longer than Israel. But there's two statements that sum up these 20 kings, and they're these. They did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, his God, or they did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. And what really saved Judah was that in amongst the 20 kings, there were some that did what was pleasing in the sight of God. There were some kings, they they piled up altars to other gods, and then the next king came and wiped them all and destroyed them and said, we're only going to worship God. Let's repent. Let's turn back. And God listened and God heard. But given that they only had 20 kings and not all the way to Jesus, you know that something happened. And what happened was this. Babylon captured the southern kingdom of Judah. So Babylon was a big power at the time and they had had, um, a big kingdom and Judah became one of those kingdoms. And this is what happened when Babylon took over from Judah. They broke down all the city walls. They took the sacred objects from the temple and took them back to Babylon. They burnt down the temple, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. And they took most of the people to Babylon, but they left the poor people behind. They said, you guys are poor, we don't really, no use, you can just stay here and continue, but we still rule over you. And what they did was they took the smart, the healthy, the good-looking young man to the palace to serve the king. Does anybody know any of the names of the smart, good-looking people? (laughs) In the Bible, yeah, it was mentioned in the Bible, not here today. Yeah, so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that's the time that we're in. So Daniel lived in Judah. He was alive when Babylon came and took over. And he was one of the men that was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon to serve the king. 
Um, and then we have Daniel in the lion's den and all that kind of stuff. Um, so again, you've got to ask the question, did God give up on his people? Or did, and did God actually abandon the covenant he's made? Because it seems that way. These people, Judah is now taken over by Babylon. But there was a big difference between Assyria and Babylon that made all the difference. And do you know what that was? The Babylonians allowed them to still worship their God. And people chose to do that. So even though they were in Babylon, they were away from Jerusalem, they were able to and they chose to still worship the one and only God. And that's where we get the story of Daniel in the lion's den. We get the story of Shadrach, and, um, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego. Nearly put their names together all wrongly. Those stories are people who are worshipping God and only God in a land that is not their own because they've been taken over. But God had not forgotten his people. Jeremiah was one of the prophets that prophesied to Judah. And this is what he said. This is what the Lord says. You have been Babylon. This is before Babylon takes over. You have been Babylon for 70 years. But I will come and do for you all the good things I promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, said the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. I'm sure that verse probably sounds familiar to you. Um, I won't talk about it because I'll get off track. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, said the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. What a great promise. When you're stuck in Babylon and you think God's forgotten, to be able to remember that God had already sent a prophet to say, this is what's going to happen. And that's what happened. 70 years later, the Persians came. And the Persians defeated Babylon, and by defeating Babylon, they now rule over the Jews. So it probably didn't happen the way that they expected it to. They probably expected them to be able to rule themselves again, but that actually didn't happen. The Persians came. This is where we get to Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book at one time. And they were separated a few years later. Well, not years later, but within Christendom, they decided to separate the two. This is the beginning of Ezra, and it says this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, so that means that Persia has taken over um, Judah, and this is their first year of them ruling over Judah. Does that make sense? The Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. Now, Cyrus is not a God worshipper. He worships other gods, but God did this to someone that did not even follow him, which I think is pretty amazing. And this is what he said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild his temp this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Judah. And may your God be with you. God brought his people home. Probably not in the way they expected, but because 
of the Persians and because of King Cyrus, he allowed anybody who wanted to, to go home. Not only to go home, but this is what it says in verse 4 of Ezra. What, when, wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbours contribute towards their expense by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So just imagine this. The Jewish people are living among the Persians now, who were the Babylonians, but we've got to change your name when someone comes and takes over from you. And so Michelle and Simon are Jews, and they're living among the rest of us who are not. And because they're Jews and they decide they want to go back to Jerusalem, the rest of us all give them gold and silver and livestock and voluntary offerings for the temple so that they can go build the temple for their God. I think it's pretty amazing that the people around them gave them what they needed to return. So God even did that. God even provided a way not only so they could go, but so they're actually able to go. Because it's nice, like I could say to my kids, yep, you're allowed to go to Disneyland if you pay your own way. And I know they're never going to find a way to pay their own way to go to Disneyland until they're old enough to go by themselves. So me saying that you're allowed to go is one thing. Providing the means so they can is even a greater thing. So King, Cyrus, so King Cyrus of Persia didn't only just say, yep, you can go if you want to. He even indicated how the people were going to be able to get back. Not only that, but this happened. And this is even amazing if you think of a king. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar, does anybody know where King Nebuchadnezzar, which, who King Nebuchadnezzar is from? Babylon. He's a, he was the king when, they, when, Babylon, when um, Judah was taken over from Babylon. Had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temples of his own God. So beforehand, we, I mentioned that that's what happened. The king Nebuchadnezzar took the great things from the temple, took them back to his own temple, destroyed the temple. And so here's a king saying, oh, hey, there's some things I've got that don't belong to me that belong in your temple. Here you go, have them, take them back where they belong. How great is God at restoring things? So good. Um, I just think this is a fantastic story of God actually restoring what was taken back. So did God give up on his people and did God abandon the covenant he made? No way. This is a clear story that indicates that God has not given up on his people. It may have looked like it, may not have been the way that they planned, but God still has kept his covenant. Because does anybody know where David came from? What tribe David came from? Judah. Does anybody know what the line of the Messiah has to come from? Judah. So by Judah surviving, all the prophecies that were made before this point, before the split, the covenant that was made with David, all actually still came to pass. Because Judah survived because the Babylonians allowed them to worship and they chose to. And then Persia said, not only can you worship, you can even go back home if you want to. Worship there. God is so good 
at keeping his promises, even if it doesn't look like it. And even if it takes 70 years, and even if we don't know what he's doing, his promises still happen. So what happened in the lead-up to the book of Nehemiah? So we're in the beginning of Ezra now. But there's some things that happen in Ezra before we get to Nehemiah. And they, this is what happened. So a group of Jews, because King Cyrus said they did, a group of them go back to Jerusalem to build a temple. Now, it wasn't a big group. It wasn't like all the Jewish people said, yes, we've only been here for 70 years and we want to go back. A lot of people were born in where they were taken in Babylon and had never even seen Jerusalem. So a remnant went back. A small group of Jews decided, yes, we're going back to our homeland. We're going back to Jerusalem and we're going to rebuild the temple. And those who returned, they settled back to the land that they had before. They rebuilt their houses there. And so all the tribes, sort of, well, Judah and Babylon, and sort of um, separated back into their tribes. And they started to rebuild the temple. And does anybody know what they built first? I think Matt mentioned it last week. Anybody remember? They rebuilt the altar first. The way that they can have forgiveness, the way that they can be cleansed, that's what they started with. And so they rebuilt the, t- the altar and then they started to rebuild the temple. Now, you see, I heard the road, they start to rebuild the temple because they didn't finish it. What happened was the locals, because now Jerusalem is not just filled with people from Judah, but lots of other people now live in the area. And they tried to discourage the Jews from rebuilding the temple. They tell them it's not worth it, it's too hard. They say lies about them. They try and bring disunity. They do a whole lot of things to stop them working. And the sad thing is the people stopped working on the temple. So they decided it was too hard, it was too much. They went back to their homes and they, they stopped building the temple of God. But then... God sent prophets. Does anybody know that there's a main prophet that starts with H that is around this time? Or Haggai. And in Haggai, if you read Haggai, he says, why are you building the temple? Why are you building your own houses when you're not building my temple? And they went, oh, yeah, of course. We forgot. We've got to build the temple. We better do that. So they start to rebuild the temple. And this time, they finish it and they dedicate it. And there is a huge celebration. And then Ezra, and this is the thing I find funny about the book of Ezra. You have to read like six chapters in before you actually get to Ezra's name being mentioned. But anyway, Ezra the priest returns to Jerusalem And he reads the law. And the people repent. And now at the start of Nehemiah. So when, anyhow, so when it says, hey, I thought I put the beginning of Nehemiah again, but I haven't. So when they said, hey, what's happening in Jerusalem? How's the remnant going? That's where they're talking about these people that have gone back to build the temple. 
Um, Nehemiah is back in Persia now and wants to know what's happening back there. When we find out what he hears, he's not really happy about, and so he decides to return to Jerusalem himself. But God has not forgotten his people. One Chronicles tells us this. He is the Lord our God. His justice is seen throughout the land. He remembers his covenant forever, ever. The commitment he makes to a thousand generations. It's so good for us to even know now that God doesn't forget. Because we can sometimes be in situations where we think, God has forgotten me. God's word says this, but I don't see it. It may take being put into captivity. It may take 70 years after that. But God will fulfill his promises. He always does and he always has. There's a passage, there's a psalm. um, 78 that I want to read and it says this. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. Um, I will open my mouth with a parable and it will utter hidden things from the old. Things we have heard and known. Things our ancestors have told us. They will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and the wonders he has done. Teach them to their children and to their next children so they will know um, and that every child, children yet to, yet to be born, that they will put their trust in God and will not forget his deeds but will keep his commands. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, God tells us to remember, to remember what he's done because it gives us hope in what he's going to do. And the story of the Israelite people gives us hope. Because even though there were consequences for them not following God. And that's why the kingdom was split in two. Because God had went, these people are not following me. And they made choices. God sent prophets again and again and again to say, turn back, listen to me, worship me, come back to me. But the northern kingdom, Israel, didn't listen. And even when Assyria took over, instead of crying out to God, they didn't listen. And they decided worshipping God and was what they wanted to do. And so they disobeyed what God said and they no longer exist. When even today, Judah exists. Because even though the Jews never until after the Second World War never um, ruled themselves again. And even when Jesus came, they weren't in control of their own destiny. The Romans had taken over. God still kept them as a nation. And so there are people now that can trace their ancestry back through the Jewish line because God has kept them Because he keeps his covenant, he keeps his promises for generations to generations to generations to generations. Doesn't always look the way that we think it's going to look. I'm sure that the Jewish people did not think that it was a good idea that Babylon was going to come. And then it was a good idea that Persia came. 
But God used the Babylonians and used Persia to actually fulfill his promises and to do what he wanted to do, which was to bring his people back to rebuild the temple. And the temple that was rebuilt is a temple that we hear about in Jesus' time. Um, the temple that Jesus followed was the one that was rebuilt the second time by these people because God keeps his promises. We're going to have communion now. I don't know. If, yeah, cool. We're going to have communion now. I just saw communion and hadn't actually talked to Matt about what his plan was, but I've got a plan, so I'm just taking my plan. Because <laughs> I'm up the front, so you know. <laughs> but you know what? We need to do the same thing. Communion is a time of remembering. Remembering the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But more than that, we need to remember our own stories. What is your story that you will pass on to the generations to come? I know my story. I know how my dad came over from England when he was 20. Had no, he sang in a choir, which my dad can't sing, so who knows why he sang in a choir at church. But he did. Got more money for funerals. Yeah, he did for the money. Funerals were better because he got more. He lived in England. Got more money for funerals than he did for weddings. So I always liked it when someone in the town died because he could get paid to sing. But you don't want my dad to sing. He can't. He's like me. He can't sing. Anyway, came to Australia at 20, landed at someone's door, knocked on their door to see if they had room for him. They said, we don't, but do you want a cup of tea? Dad goes, of course, every Englishman likes a cup of tea. Drinks his tea, stays there talking, talking to these people. And the people, Dad tells the story and says, people are trying to get rid of him. And they say, um, we've got to go, but tomorrow we're going to this um, conference. It's Easter time and there's this conference up at this place called Belgrave Heights. If you want to come, you're welcome to. And Dad goes, oh, well, I've got nothing better to do. I don't know anybody. I'll come with these nice people. They make good tea. And so he goes to Belgrave Heights. He's the gospel message for the first time, four days from landing in Australia, commits his life to Jesus, goes to their church, meets my mum, the rest is history, here I am now. <laughs> it's a long story to that. But I know that is part of my story. That is part of God intervening in my family's life that's made a big impact on my family. And there's other stories, more recent stories than that, not just of faith stories, but of trusting God and God coming through of answered prayer. And we need to be people that share those stories, just like the Israelites did, because that's how we build our faith, by going, wow, Kelly's hands were healed. What a great faith story. Next time God prompts me to pray for someone, I'm going to do that. Maybe I should ask for healing. Oh, yeah, God can actually do that. It builds our faith. And so when we take communion today, I want you to think of something, of one thing that God has done that's part of your faith story. It could have happened last week. It could have happened in your parents' life. But a story that you know that you can praise God for. And I want you to remember it. And when you take the elements, thank God for it. Thank God that he intervened in that way at that time. And then if you want to, let someone else know about it. Because that's how we build our faith, by passing on the stories of what God has done. So that you can stand and go, yeah, if God was faithful there, of course he's going to be faithful now. 
If God can use the Persians and the Babylonians to rescue his people, of course he can use anything. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. A God that keeps his promises. A God that does not forget his people. And the same God back in the Old Testament and the same God today doesn't change. So he hasn't forgotten. He doesn't forget. And by us remembering what he has done, hopefully it will give us the courage and the faith we need to remember he will still do it. Whatever he hasn't done doesn't mean it's not going to happen because God keeps his promises. God, I want to thank you that you are a trustworthy God, that you keep your promises, you keep your covenants, that your word is true and we can believe it and have faith in it, God. And I just want to thank you for each person in this room, God, and for the faith stories that we each have, God, those situations, those instances that we can tell of that show the way that you intervened, the way that you worked, the way that you answered prayer, the way that you did what only you could do. And I pray, Lord, that we will hold on to them, that we will remember them, we will pass them on, God, not so we can live in the past, but so they can spur us on, God, to what you have in our future, God. We want to be a people of faith, God. We want to be people that see you move, that trust in you and trust in your promises, God. And thank you, Lord, that you are so trustworthy. Amen.